All right, let's go ahead and take our seats. If you're seated, find a Bible somewhere, somehow. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. If it's a browser, you can type in ESV Genesis 4, and you should be okay. Well, if you're able, please stand. We're going to listen to the first part of our passage read. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Here is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In Shakespeare's play, the play Hamlet, the main character, Hamlet, confronts a ghost, and they have a conversation different than the Scrooge conversation with his ghosts. So this is how the Hamlet conversation goes with the ghost. The ghost says, my hour is almost come when I to sulfurous and tormenting flames must render up myself. Hamlet, alas, poor ghost, ghost, pity me not, but lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold. Hamlet, speak, I am bound to hear. Ghost, so art thou to revenge when thou shalt hear. Hamlet, what? Ghost, I am thy father's spirit. The ghost continues. List, list, O oh list, listen. If thou didst ever thy dear father love, Hamlet, O oh heaven, ghost, revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Hamlet, murder, ghost, murder most foul, as in the best it is, but this most foul, strange, and unnatural. Now, Hamlet, here, tis given out that sleeping in mine orchard, a serpent stung me, so the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death, rankly abused. But know thou, noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. Hamlet, oh, my prophetic soul, my uncle. And then the ghost, sleeping within mine orchard, my custom always in the afternoon, upon my secure hour thy uncle stole 
with juice of cursed Hebanon in a vial, and in the porches of mine ears did pour the leprous distillment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body. So did it mine. Thus was I, sleeping by a brother's hand, of life, of crown, of queen, at once dispatched, cut off even in the blossoms of my sin. No reckoning made for my sins, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. Well, that's the, the event behind the whole tragedy of Hamlet's. A brother killed a brother, and then the whole play begins to unfold, act by act, scene by scene, until you get to the conclusion of Hamlet's, and you find everyone dead. Sorry to ruin this story for you. Everyone dies in the end. It is a tragedy after all. And in this play, we'll, we'll hear that Hamlet does hint at redemption. But in the Bible, fortunately, praise God, it doesn't just hint at redemption, it proclaims it. And so when a brother kills a brother, we're going to see that this is a direct line to the Lord Jesus Christ, another son promised and given, but in his case, the one who accomplishes redemption for us. Now, the story opens up for us in, in a very, you know, this is one of those stories where you have to put yourself there, walk, walk through it as, as the different characters, walk through it as Adam and Eve watching this unfold. It's just a horrible family tragedy. There's whatever your family is, this is worse. And what it does is provoke that sense, that felt sense that we need help. We need a savior. What we need is not in us. It's somewhere else, and we need help. Now let's back up just a bit, see where we are in the storyline. We're at chapter 4 of Genesis. And from this point on, actually in the series, we're going to begin to move faster through the book. So we've spent the last several months in the first three chapters, and actually the next several months will get us to the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50. So we're going to be moving quicker. First two verses, in the beginning, God created in the, in the heavens and the earth. And then from chapter 1, verse 3 to the end of chapter 31, you get the six days of creation. Everything is made. And God looks at everything made and says, it's very good. It's perfect. And then God rests from his work. That's at the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis. And then in chapter 2, you get kind of a restart. We look back at day 6 of the six days of creation, and then we get more detail on the special creation of Adam and Eve. And by the end of chapter 2, all is perfect, but now we understand more the dynamic between Adam and Eve, what they are to each other. They're husband and wife. They've been commissioned by God to this great task, this cultural mandate to take what's in the Garden of Eden and expand it throughout the entire world. And then you get to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. Tempted by, Eve is tempted by the serpents. Adam and Eve give, give in to sin. And because of Adam's place in, in God's plan of redemption, with Adam's sin, all of humanity was plunged into sin and cursed. The earth itself, the universe itself actually, is cursed and so along with us, the universe is waiting for that day when Christ returns and the universe is remade. 
But even at that moment, there's a gospel promise. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first gospel, the covenant of grace. So this is from chapter 3, verse 15. So God's speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the promise that even though sin in some ways first came through that serpent, this is the promise that ultimately this serpent will be destroyed. And that serpent is the devil. That serpent will be destroyed. And ultimately the destroyer of that serpent the kind of literal dragon slayer will be the offspring of the woman. And so our hope ultimately is in the offspring of a woman, some particular woman at some particular time. She's gonna, that's going to be the champion that's going to crush the serpent and bring redemption and restoration. And it's the hope in that promise that saves. So right from the start, that's our series in Genesis, right from the start. And so what we see is right from the start, the horrible reality and destructiveness of sin and our need for a Savior. That's what's going to come out in our chapter today. The horrible destructiveness of sin and then our need for a Savior. So three points. The first one is Cain and Abel. The second one is Cain and culture. And then the third one is Seth and promise. So we've got three sons we're going to talk about. Cain, Abel, and Seth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to look back at this horrible story while at the same time looking back on Christmas, that first Christmas when Christ came, born to Mary. And so we know, Lord, that the remedy has been provided. Lord, it's a, a sad tale of human pain that we read about, and at the same time, there's hope in Christ Wherever we identify in this story, there's hope for us in Christ. If we came this morning separated from you, destined for eternally being separated from you, then Lord, would you, would you give that, that person or those people faith this morning? that They might know that the offer of salvation is for them. Whoever believes in this promised son, Jesus Christ, will be saved. So come, Lord, do a work in all of our hearts, we pray, through this this tragedy that also has that silver lining of hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, Cain and Abel. This is going to be the first 16 verses. We've already read the first part of it. We'll get to the rest of this section in a moment. So the chapter opens by jumping into the story of the sons of Adam and Eve. So their firstborn is named Cain. Eve Names, actually, her first two sons, first three sons. Eve names Cain, and the word Cain sounds like got. I have gotten a man, child, with the help of the Lord. And so Cain is his name. He's the gotten one. And her faith is revealed in the fact that it's Yahweh, she mentions, the covenant name of God. I've gotten a man, child, with the help of Yahweh, with the help of the Lord. She knows the Lord, and so she, in, in a sense, expresses her faith in that way. And then they have the, another son, a second son, Abel. His name means vanity or vapor. And so in, in Ecclesiastes, when it says that all is vanity, vanity of vanities, that word is actually the same word as, as for Abel. So you, you don't want to think that he's a vain man, but it, it really is, it is a prophetic name. 
his life will be cut short as a vapor. He should have endured, but his life will be cut short. And so his name speaks to that. Abel's a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. Cain's a farmer, both noble professions. Nothing in those professions that is anything but noble and worthy at the time. Still is. But then you turn to worship. And this is where the real differences between Cain and Abel come out. They both make an offering to the Lord. And the offerings are very subtly different, but that subtle difference makes all the difference. And so in verse 4, we'll pick it up verse 3. So in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And then verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain's offering is, he's a farmer, so he's offering of the fruit of the ground. And the, and the, the subtle, the subtle um, description there is it's not the first fruits of the ground. It's the fruit of the ground, but not the first fruits of the ground. Later on in the, in the law of Moses, when the, the offering from the fields are, are made, it's the first fruits that you give. That's the, that's the, uh, the most significant, important prize part of of the offering or the harvest that you have. It's that first fruits. That's, that's what you give to the Lord, your first fruits. Cain did not give the first fruits to the Lord. He gave some, some part, which was certainly a, a, some level of sacrifice, but not the first fruits. But then when you get to Abel and his offering in verse 4, it's the firstborn of the flock and of the fat portions, uh, not the lean, gamey portions of meat, but the fat portions of meat were offered. And later on in the law of Moses, we'll see that that's the precious part of the sacrifice, the firstborn of the flock. And it would, later on, it's going to be unblemished firstborn, but at this point, firstborn and then the fatty portion. That's what, that's what Abel gives. And so there's, there are not so subtle hints that these, these sacrifices are reflecting very different attitudes toward the Lord. One is giving his first and best, and the other is giving something, but it's not first and best. In the book of uh, Hebrews, the author describes the sacrifice of, of Abel, the offering of Abel, and he says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His sacrifice was offered with faith. And therefore was acceptable to the Lord. Because it was offered with faith, well then, Abel is recognized as righteous. He's commended as righteous. Now Cain has some sense that that's that's exactly what's happening here. That Abel has been honored by the Lord in a way that he simply was not. And sort of in a strange, truly sinful reaction, he gets mad. Viciously mad, actually. Exceedingly angry is what the Hebrew says. And then the Lord, in in an unnecessary act of graciousness and patience, actually comes to Cain. The Lord knows what's about to happen. So this this is a final appeal to Cain. And the Lord asks, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? You know, just, just a physical reaction to match his, his, what's going on in his soul, that his, his whole soul has, has fallen. It's bitter. It's angry. If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, it's not too late. There's hope for you. 
There's still time to change. Favor with God is within reach, is really what God is saying to Cain. Favor with God, favor with me is within reach. And then God gives this very vivid description of what what is going on in, in Cain's soul. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You know, sin, like, a, like a, a crouched lion ready to pounce. Or maybe to pick up the, the, the image of the serpent who, who bruises the heel of the offspring of the woman. That serpent, low and ready to strike. Sin is crouching, ready to pounce. Very vivid picture of what sin is, what sin does. And, what, and really what the Lord is saying is you must rule over it or it will rule over you. You must rule over your sin, or your sin will rule over you. So that's where we stopped. Let's pick up the rest of the story of Cain and Abel. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So in a fit of uncontrollable and irrational rage, irrational, Cain kills his brother Abel. That sin-crouching ruled over Cain, and then Cain gave into it heartily, fully. Now, Adam and Eve, certainly, because they knew the promise that the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman would crush the offspring of the serpent, would crush the serpent. Certainly, they were hoping that one of these two would be the serpent crusher, would be the one who would bring deliverance and redemption. But they were horribly disappointed in that, weren't they? So instead of a serpent killer, they got a brother killer. Now, the New Testament, when it's thinking back to this sin of Cain, wants us to learn from it. In some ways, the lesson is obvious. Don't kill your brother. That's really bad. But here's what the author of, well, here's what what John says in 1 John 3. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. And murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. That, word is, that description is important. That he was of the evil one. Out of the evil one. He was in some ways a seed of the serpent. Yes, he was a, he was a person. He was a normal person. Just like his brother was a normal person. And yet because of his heart, because of his disposition to sin and, and murder, he was in a, in a real sense of the evil one at the same time. And Jesus will use similar language when he talks to the Pharisees, those who were resistant to him, of course. 
So he speaks to them in John 8, and he says, you are of your father, the devil. Same kind of language, of, the, of, the, uh, of, of your father, the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when you lie or when you murder, you are demonstrating that you are of your father, the devil. So this isn't, this isn't delving into the, the, the topic of demon possession or anything like that. This is speaking of a, of a sinful nature, unredeemed sinful nature. You are of the evil one. You are of your father, the devil, when that's true of you. So two points of application here. One is just to see the process of sin. Just like, just like at the fall, those opening verses of chapter 3, you see how sin has a, there's a process to sin. You don't just go from indifference to murder. There's a, there's, a step, there's a pattern of step you walk through there. It lodges in your mind and in your heart. And when it lodges there, then you're preparing yourself for action. And then you commit that action of murder. Now, Cain's anger was sinful anger. And his thoughts were sinful thoughts. And Jesus very closely identifies sinful anger with murder in Matthew chapter 5. But Jesus wasn't saying that murder is just as bad as, as a sinful thought. Now, murder is actually worse than a sinful thought. But you don't get to murder without passing through sinful anger and sinful thoughts along the way. So rule over your sin before your sin rules over you. Rule over your sin when it's in, in your heart and in your mind, but you haven't yet given way to that action. Now, of course, that's possible only through Christ, through active faith and dependence on the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, rule over your sin or else it will be ruling over you. In 1 John, uh, John the apostle said to love one another and not be like Cain, and he's speaking to the body of Christ, the church, and he wants them to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the, the call by John is, uh, is for us to treat each other, love each other, respect each other, serve one another as equals. We are siblings. Yes, it's true that some of us are going to serve different roles in the church, but in the end we serve each other as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no partiality because of wealth or because of race or because of sex or education or any other kind of partiality, no sinful division between us. We serve each other as brothers and sisters, not like Cain. We love each other. So that's point one, Cain and Abel. Now point two, Cain and culture. Verse 17 to 24. So now we get a, a snapshot of the line of Cain. Cain's going to go off, he's going to marry, and then he's going to have children who have children who have children who have children, and this is the line of Cain. This is what happens in the, Cain, uh, the Cainite line. So verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Not the Enoch that walked with God and then was taken up, a different Enoch. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he, built, uh, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael uh, fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. 
He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Canaan culture. So Moses walks us through seven generations of Cain. And in these seven generations, we get a glimpse of the cultural mandate. You know, that word to Adam and Eve in, in, in chapter 1 of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over all things. A cultural mandate. In other words, take this garden of Eden, work the ground, cultivate it, and then spread it, multiply it. Let it fill the earth. And what you get in the seven generations of Cain is the cultural mandate. People doing that. They're investing, cultivating, expanding, innovating. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. However, what we see here is a picture of the cultural mandate without the fear of God. In none of these generations is there a fear of God. The line of Cain is a line that does not fear God. But two big lessons here. So the first lesson we want to see here in this, this, this Canaan culture point is that God is gracious. He's giving common grace, even when he does not give special grace. Special grace for, for salvation, to respond rightly to the Lord, to fear him. He's giving common, common grace, though, to these people who do not fear him. And common grace is grace. It's from God. It's a gift from God to humanity. So when medicine is developed, that's grace given by God for all people, not just the church, but for all people. It's a common grace of God. And so in these generations, we're seeing this grace for invention and ingenuity. You see city building in itself, not a terrible thing. City building. So Cain builds a city, calls it Enoch after his son. Now when the godly line will build cities later, they don't name it after themselves. So there is a difference there. They name, it, they name it after some work of God or the place or some uh, natural uh, attribute, but not, they don't name it after themselves. But city building, common grace for city building. And then there's culture building. Jabal is the father of the Bedouin lifestyle. So this, this um, uh, flocks and herds. So he's a, he's a nomad. He's traveling with his flocks. Different than Abel, who was a, who was a, herd, um, a shepherd. But when you get to Jabal, He's turned it into an industry. There's a cultural advance with Jabal in verse 20. And then in 21, you get the first musician, the lyre and the pipe. So this is the guy who's, uh, Jubal is the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Stringed instruments and, and horns. So some believe this is the oldest and simplest of instruments. It's hard to say what, what that is, but, uh, but he's nonetheless the first musician in our Bibles, Jubal. Music is a gift of God, common grace. There are some really terrible people who are amazing and wonderful musicians who write some of the most beautiful music ever written and yet are just terrible people. And that's common grace. Tubal Cain. So he's connected with metalworking. So iron and metal. We can celebrate these things, these advances in culture. These are good things. They bless people. 
We don't need to go back to a, a more primitive culture just because the people who invented these things are unbelievers. It's common grace. There's common grace here. But the other big lesson is that right alongside the, this invention and ingenuity is a depravity that is almost totally out of control. So five generations after Cain, you get this guy, Lamech. He's a picture of sin out of control. He takes two wives, so he's the first polygamist in the Bible. And there's something brazen about that. And, and as, as one commentator pointed out, when, when you trace the, the polygamy throughout Genesis, you realize this is not a good thing for these guys. This does not go well. This is not anything to imitate whatsoever. This goes poorly. That's Lamech. And then he writes the first poem, but it's a, a poem about him killing someone, murdering someone. Kills a young man for striking me. And the, the, the implication is that this was a total overreaction. You know, he slapped me maybe, and then I killed him. And then he, then he celebrates his own ve- uh, vengeance. So if, if Cain would be avenged seven times, I'm going to be avenged 77 times. My sin is so much greater than, than Cain's. But, this, but it's all said in a very boastful uh, spirit. So it's the first gangster rap. That's what we have here. The first gangster rap in history. It is, it is very similar to that, just a celebration of, of violence. So what you get there is the sheer sinfulness and destructiveness of sin. You know, Adam ate the fruit. That was the, the great tragic sin he did, he did. But then you get to his children, and then his, the descendants of his children, and you see what sin does. It's horrible. It expands. It multiplies. It grows. It's a, it's a, it's a cancer that just is out of, spinning out of control. It destroys beautiful and godly things for sheer pleasure. But that combination of common grace and depravity come together in culture. And that's helpful for us as Christians. So we want to see the culture around us, just like the culture at that time. Wonderful ingenuity and common grace and sometimes depravity that feels totally out of control. It's not totally out of control because the Lord's sovereignty and preservation is there. But they come together in culture. And so we don't want to be blind to either, either side. You know, culture is not only gracious. There is a, there is a real depravity in, in any large culture, especially like the United States. But it's not only depravity. There is grace there. There is common grace there in all kinds of ways, all kinds of wonderful ways. You just have eyes to see it. So that's the application for us, that we see culture accurately. Common grace, depravity coming together. Derek Kidner, as he's reflecting on these these verses, says this, The beginnings of civilized life show a characteristic potentiality for good and evil, with the arts that will bless mankind flanked by abuses that will curse it. A biased account would have ascribed nothing good to Cain. The truth is more complex. God was to make much use of Cainite techniques for his people, from the semi-nomadic discipline itself, to the civilized arts and crafts, and the references to building the tabernacle. The phrase, he was the father of all, such acknowledges the debt and prepares us to accept for ourselves a similar indebtedness to secular enterprise. For the Bible nowhere teaches that the godly should have all the gifts. At the same time, we are saved from overvaluing these skills. The family of Lamech could handle its environment, but not itself. 
The attempt to improve on God's marriage ordinance set a disastrous precedent on which the rest of Genesis is common enough. Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. Derek Kidner, it's a great observation. Point three, Seth and promise. Verses 25 and 6. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So they're a third child, their third son. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son, uh, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what Moses will often do, now this is the end of a section, and the very next verse, 5.1, 5, is the beginning of the next section, kind of a chapter. Now, in our English Bible, it's the, it is a chapter, but the way Moses wrote it, the chapters weren't numbered in, in the way that ours are. And so he would insert this phrase, these are the generations of, or as ESV has it, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That's 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. That's the next section. And what Moses will often do is at the end of one section, he'll give a little teaser that sets you up for the beginning of the next section. So at the end of the section we've just, in chapter 4, he mentions Seth. And then chapter 5 begins with Seth. I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 5 just so you can get oriented to uh, this man, Seth. So this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years... Which, of course, means that Eve had lived 130 years, right? When Adam and Eve had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Let's go back to the end of chapter 4, verse 25 and 6. So Eve, once again, is showing her faith in God by the name that she gives to her son. But this time, there's a, there's a, there's a subtle maturity that, was, that is evident, that is more mature than it was in the early part of the chapter when she named Cain. So now she names him Seth. Seth in the word appoint. God has appointed for me another offspring. So Seth and appoint. That's, that sounds similar in the Hebrew. So God has appointed for me another offspring. And the, the slight advance in her faith is that before, she was helped by the Lord. And now it's God doing it all. He's appointed for me another offspring. Now, Adam knew his wife, so this is not uh, a miraculous conception here. But nonetheless, she's, she's aware, all I have, I have from the Lord. God has appointed this for me. And at this, at this point, she also speaks of that offspring. God has appointed for me another offspring. And in Genesis you just want to take note whenever that word offspring pops up because that's tying, tying us all back to Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman that's going to crush the offspring of the serpent. And so she's, she's in her faith, in her maturity, she's going back to that and hoping maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one that's going to change things. And that hope is... We're not disappointed in the hope in some ways because when you get to the, at the end of verse 26, you see this just great refreshing, you know, we've just read a horrible tale 
uh, in chapter 4, you get this refreshing word of hope and worship. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what, that's what they should have been doing the whole time. But now people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, in the line of Seth, they're calling upon the name of the Lord. In the line of Cain, they are not. And those two lines, are gonna, we're going to see that time and again in the book of Genesis. There's going to be a line that's calling on the name of the Lord and a line that's not. And the blessing will follow the line that calls upon the name of the Lord, and curses will follow the line that does not call upon the name of the Lord. And as a, as a vivid example here, what's the, what's the lasting legacy from these two sons, Seth and Cain? What's Cain's lasting legacy? Well, you have this, this common grace, this invention, this ingenuity that he's left us. But his name is never mentioned again in the Old Testament. Chapter 4 is the last time he's ever mentioned. Now, in the New Testament, he's held up as a very negative example not to follow. But that's it. Those are all the mentions Cain gets for the rest of our Bibles. But Seth? Well, Seth is, is the one that his descendants give us Noah. And then that descend, those descendants give us Abraham. And then those descendants give us the Lord Jesus Christ. So the ultimate legacy of Seth, the one who called on the, upon the name of the Lord, is in many ways the Lord Jesus Christ. King Claudius is the brother who killed King Hamlet. So Hamlet's, Hamlet's uncle is King Claudius. And later in the play, Hamlet, there's a, there's a famous prayer, a famous meditation by King Claudius. And he's, for different reasons and different ways, very attributable to Hamlet himself, actually. He's been pricked. His sin is, is weighing upon him. And he says this, in Act 3, he says, Oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it. The primal eldest curse upon it. A brother's murder. Well, he's talking about Cain and Abel there. Cain is that primal elder who murdered his brother. Claudius is aware that that's exactly what he's done. So, oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest cursed upon it, a brother's murder. Pray, can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will. My stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? In other words, what if my hand was, was covered in my brother's blood? What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? Hamlet, again, gives us hints. Hints that there's a redemption available to us. Unfortunately, the, the, gospel doesn't, the, the Bible does not hint at the redemption that we desperately need. It proclaims it. There isn't rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash us clean. There just isn't. It rained a lot today. Not nearly enough to wash your sin clean. You need something totally different to wash your sin clean. The book of Hebrews, the author, is reflecting on what it is to be a Christian. What, what is our inheritance? And he's going to say some wonderful things, but he's going to finish with the blood of Abel. A comparison with the blood of Abel. 
So what does it mean to be God's people? It means that we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What an inheritance we have. What treasure we possess by being God's people. And one of the amazing things that we possess is a mediator. A mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose sprinkled blood, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks something. It speaks of murder and shame and crime and sin that needs to be atoned for, destruction. But the blood of Jesus, it speaks a better word. It speaks that there is forgiveness in Christ. There is cleansing of sin in Christ. Through faith in him, we are cleansed to the deepest crevices of our souls. There's, when he cleanses us, there's nothing left to clean. That's why we love Christmas. Not because of the presents and trees, although those are fun. Christmas trees are great. Stockings are great. All that's very fun. Our family indulges and we love it. But it's what all those celebrations point back to, that first Christmas, the coming of the Messiah, the promised one. You can hear the, the echo of that Genesis 3.15 promise, the coming serpent crusher, the coming one who will be born of a woman, in this word from Galatians 4. Where Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born of woman. Why did he go out of his way to say born of woman? Because of that Genesis 3.15 promise. It was historically true, yes. But it was also theologically important because of that Genesis 3.15 promise. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have faith in Christ? Yes, it's forgiveness, cleansing of all sin. But it also means we look into heaven, the creator and judge of all people, and we say, that's my dad. Abba, Father, that is my God. So a couple practical things as we close here. One is... Where are you living like Cain? Now, none of you are murderers, as far as we know. But are there ways where in your mind and in your heart, you are murdering people? You are, you are satisfying your sinful desires by not literally murdering people, perhaps, but stewing in hatred, feeding hatred. Where are you living like a Cain and need to just stop? Turn to the Lord and repent. And then to parents. Teach your children to be like the children of Seth who called on the name of the Lord. The legacy that that resulted from that is profound. And yes, it was sovereignly directed. We do know that. But as parents, teach your children to call upon the name of the Lord. That's our great desire as parents, that they would live their lives calling on the name of the Lord, surpassing us 
in character and knowledge of God and fruitfulness. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for a Bible which is so perfect, so flawless, so captivating, so redemptive. It is your revelation given to us. And we do, we do thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we would be good students of your Bibles, of your Bible. We pray that our, our lives would be marked by a daily and a weekly and a monthly and an annual discipline in, in just turning the pages of this Bible and trying to understand it for ourselves and apply it to ourselves. And as 2023 gives way to 2024, would you help us, Lord, to be more faithful reading our Bibles perhaps than we have been this year? Maybe we need a fresh start in that. But Lord, give us grace to be those who are faithful students of your word and let that, let that affect us. And in places where we are tempted to be like Cain and, and feast on sinful anger, we pray that we would grow in repentance and humility and love for others. We pray that you would help us as parents to create households built around the word of God as much as we're able. If nothing else, Lord, we can read the Bible uh, to our children And we do pray, Lord, that, that you would, uh, over these next several weeks, uh, just wash over us once again with, this, with the glory of the gospel. It is a remedy sufficient for the sin that we have. It is the only remedy sufficient for the sin that we have. There's no good intention. There's no lifestyle change. There's nothing we can do which is going to give us approval with you. All we can do is trust in Christ. That's the only thing we can do. So be glorified, be glorified, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.